It's good to have Stuart back with us today. Yeah, we're grateful for his availability to the Lord. It's good to see you. If you have your Bible or your smartphone or your iPad, um, Colossians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, we're going to seek to put a fitting end to our study of Colossians. But before we do that, I want to read to you a little bit out of my, uh, my personal journal, because it seems uh, a few weeks ago, on the 8th of this month, I was preaching on the imperatives, the four imperatives that Paul gives the new community, those living as new men and women in new community. And, uh, and one of those imperatives in verse 15 of chapter 3 was this, let rule is the imperative, let rule the peace of Christ in your heart. To which you were called, all of you, into one body, into one unified body. And so we talked about peace, and, uh, and Monday morning I got up, and I'm reading through the Bible like a number of, uh, of you are. Hopefully you're staying up. I'm, I'm trying to stay a little bit ahead. But uh, as I got up that morning... In, uh, in my personal devotions, I was reading from Jeremiah in chapter 6. And listen to what re- Je- Jeremiah writes there. He says, they have, that is the false prophets in Jerusalem, they have treated my people's brokenness superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed, Jeremiah writes? Not at all. They no longer feel humiliation. Therefore, they will fall among the fallen. They will collapse, says the Lord. And this is what the Lord says in verse 16. Stand by the roadway and look and ask about the ancient paths which is the way to what is good. And take it, and there you will find rest for yourselves. But they protested, and they said, we won't do it. They have treated my people's brokenness superficially. There were two things that just weighed very heavily on me after I read those verses. And one of them is the fear that in this present day, that there is a lot of preaching that is very superficial in the church. A lot that kind of comes across almost kind of like a a self-help, you know, kind of approach to the Christian faith. And and most of you know that if you go in Barnes & Noble and you walk in, you will find at least two aisles of books, thousands of volumes on self-help. And I'm going to ask you, are we better off? How are we doing? With all this proliferation of self-help kind of stuff that's going on out there, you know, and because we, we tend sometimes to want to gloss over the problems and not be willing to deal with the, the fact that there is brokenness in our lives and that we're all broken. I appreciate Stuart saying that. 
So grace is amazing because we recognize that we are all sinners and that we are all broken. And it needs to be said from the front end that there are no perfect people allowed here. Only broken people. Folks that come with a need because there is one here. There's only one here who is perfect and complete in every way. And he's with us. His name is Jesus. And that's why we've been singing and worshiping him. Because we recognize that we are broken and we cannot treat that superficially. The gospel has to, be, has to be brought to bear upon our lives and there has to be a willingness to acknowledge that brokenness in us. But there's another fear. There was another concern that it raised. And I'm just going to read you my entry in my journal for that day. I am caused to reflect on how we seek an easy peace which costs us little, and we avoid the difficult conversations at church. The hard work of peacemaking and reconciling relationships, and the result is that our relationships, not only with God, but with other in much of the church today, are nothing but Superficial. I long for much more than that. And I hope you do too. When we look at these last verses in Paul, in chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, I'm going to read the entire text from 7 to verse 18 as Paul closes this out. And what you will find in these verses is that Paul had this amazing capacity for relationships, for building friendships in the faith. He also had this amazing capacity to let others emerge and use their gifts and and develop their own leadership skills and make their own unique contribution. And he had this amazing capacity to want to recognize and honor that and to be grateful for that. And that's what you find as Paul closes out the letter. As we begin in verse 7, he's going to list about 10 people. You know, in, 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 this, in his closing paragraphs to which uh, he has, been, has developed that kind of friendship and that kind of closeness, there is no superficiality in what Paul is telling us here. These aren't surface kind of relationships. There's some real depth and there's real experience. And there's, this is some people that are doing life together. And this is a picture of what I think the church ought to look like. Now, Paul mentions 10 people here in the book of Romans. At the end of the book of Romans, he mentions his 26. All in all, if you look at, you take all the letters of Paul and you add it up, there, are, there were over a hundred people that Paul acknowledged that were in his circle from time to time. Some of them flowed in and out, but he had this amazing capacity. And so that's what I want us to look at in beginning with verse seven. Tychicus will tell you about my, my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place 
here. And remember, Paul is in house arrest in Rome. Okay. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in prayers, that you may stand mature and be fully assured in all of the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that is in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill your ministry, the one you have received, that you have received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. We just sang about it. How does Paul end his letter? Grace. How did Paul begin his letter? <laughs> with grace. Verse 2. Grace be to you all and peace from God the Father. And, and what's in between? The beginning and the end. It's all about grace, isn't it? Chapters 1 and 2, remember the vertical indicative, the finished work of Christ on our behalf, dying mercifully and offering grace to us a work that none of us can add anything to. We can only receive it and put our trust and faith in Him. And then when we started from chapters 2, when we started into chapter 3 into the practical section of the book, I introduced that whole section by talking to you about grace-driven effort. That everything that happens, all growth and transformation in our life, is a product of the grace of God operative in our life that gives us the power to change, the power to obey, the power to fulfill His will. So it's all about grace. You know, interestingly enough, a couple years ago, I got fired. I get fired from time to time as a pastor. I got a, kind of an ugly email. And in the gist of the email, you know what he said? He says, I talk about grace too much. I'm still scratching my head. I don't think I talk about grace near enough. I guess he wanted rules. I don't know. I can't stop talking about grace. And I hope you can't either. Because you're looking at a broken man. <laughs> you know, a broken man saved by grace. And God continues to do that work of refining and renewing and restoring and revising this old boy. Because it's all about grace. It begins with grace and it continues with grace. 
You don't just get grace when you come in the door so you can get in the door and then you've got to figure it out from there. You get grace all the way through. Okay. That was a sidebar sermon. Okay. Um, so let's talk, about, let's talk about these relationships here. Look, look at verse 7. This is beautiful. You want to talk about superficial relations? You want to talk about relationships that are anything but superficial? Look at what he says about Tychicus. Now, Tychicus was the guy who delivered the letter. This letter along with the letter to the Ephesians and the letter that was written specifically to Philemon, who was a member of the church there at Colossae. He said, Tychicus, you know, when he comes, he will tell you about my activities. And listen, he gives three things that describe Tychicus. He says he is a beloved brother. First of all, he's a beloved brother. Second, he's a faithful minister. And third, he's a fellow servant. Those are some really good words. Now, you may be, the, the, the Greek word for brother is adelphos, okay? So now, if you, the city of brotherly love, one of the Greek words for love is philos, philadelphos, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Now, Paul here doesn't use philos, he uses Agape tos. He says, he says, Tychicus is a beloved agape tos Adelphos. He's a beloved brother, which the use of the, of the agape tos is to indicate to us, this is not the natural love. This is the supernatural love of God that has been, that is being expressed in the life of Tychicus. He understands, he knows he's loved by God. And out of the resource of the love of God in his life, he's able to love others. He's a beloved brother recognized by you all. He's a faithful, he's a faithful minister. Now the word there for minister is diakonoi. It's the, our word, we get the word deacon from it. A servant, literally the, the, the word means one who waits on tables. One who waits on tables. So if you go out to lunch today, pay particular attention to who serves you and tip them well. Seriously, in all my years of collegiate ministry at Stephen F., I, I, you know, about the only place that students could get jobs in Nacogdoches was in restaurants, and to a person, they hated to work on what day of the week? Sunday. You know why? Because Christians are the worst tippers in the world. That's just a fact. A diaconoi, I mean a deacon, you know, literally was a waiter of tables. So if you go out to lunch today, pay particular attention to who's taking care of you. Because he says, he says, that's exactly, that's exactly what Tychicus was like. He was always serving others. And then he says he was a fellow servant. Now the word there, it's one word in Greek, sundulas. Soon means together or together with. Doulos is the word for a bond slave. Do you know what a bond slave is? You know the difference between a slave and a bond slave? Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, God gives the moral law in Exodus chapter what? Chapter 20. The very first sentences of chapter 21. Right after the giving of the moral law, God immediately begins to give laws to protect those who are slaves in that culture. But there is one provision in Exodus chapter 21 
that's called the provision for the bond servant. Because if a slave who could only be enslaved for six, a six-year period in Judaism to, in, the, in the paying off of debt, if, if a slave has earned his freedom, but he so loves his master. Let's say he, he, you know, he, he knows in a week I'm going to be a free man, but he so loves his master, and he says to himself, you know, I love my master, and I love being in his house, and my master takes such great care of me. I have everything that I need, and he takes care of my wife and my, my children, and, and, and so in, I don't want my freedom. I'm going to become a bond slave, and by his own free choice, by his choice, he can become a bond slave, which means he gives up all rights to his life and all rights to any possession. He will own nothing from that day forward because he will be devoted to his master. And he does it for only one reason. Exodus 21 says, because he loves his master. And so what they do is they take that servant out and they take him to the gate of the home and they lay his earlobe up on the, on the gate post. And they take an awl, they take an ice pick and they bore a hole through his ear. And then they take carbon black, lamp black, and they rub it into the hole so that from that day forward, anyone who sees that person and will see this large black dot on his ear and they will know what? He's a bond slave. He owns nothing. And he serves his master for only one reason, and that is love. And Paul says, Tychicus is a fellow bond slave. I'm reminded of the story of William Borden. He graduated from high school in 1904 at the age of 16. And uh, when he graduated, he was already a millionaire. Uh, Borden was the, the, the single heir to the Borden family fortune, the dairy fortune of the, of the Borden. You still know the Borden milk people, right? You know, he, he was the heir. And so he was a, at graduation from high school, a millionaire, and his parents sought to, you know, for him to have a broad education. And so the year after he graduated from high school, they sent him on a trip around the world. It backfired on them. Because when William Borden began to travel around the world, he began to see incredible poverty. He encountered cultures with strange religions where people didn't know the gospel and had never heard the gospel. He saw incredible injustice and child labor. He saw all the, the, the struggles and difficulties that were going on in places all over the world, and literally his heart just broke. And he decided to forsake the family fortune and to become a missionary, to take the gospel into a foreign land. And so when he returned home to, to the objection of his parents and his friends and the extended family, you know, he made the decision that he was going to focus his life on becoming a missionary. And he got out his Bible and he wrote two words. He wrote two words in the front flyleaf of the Bible. No reserves. What did he just do? He just renounced all family fortune. He just says, man, I'm going to be a bond slave. 
I'm not going to work for me. I'm not going to have, I'm not going to own anything or possess anything. No reserves. And then he went off to Yale University. He was a bright student, became the president of, of the Honor Society at, at Yale, graduated at the top of his class. In his freshman year, he began to notice that at that time in, you know, in Yale University, that there was a lot of agnosticism and even atheism, and there was, you know, humanism. There was, there was anything but really a genuine faith expressed in the students there on campus. He began to have a burden for the students at Yale University. And so one of his, you know, one of his roommates in college, his dorm mates, began to meet once a week for prayer and for reading of Scripture. Before the end of, of William Borden's freshman year, there were 150 freshmen who were crowding together to pray and to read Scripture. And William Borden would give a brief explanation of, of, and meaning to, to the Scripture. By the time he graduated from Yale University, 1,000 out of 1,200 students at Yale University were involved in small personal Bible studies and prayer groups. The impact of one man who said, no reserves. When he graduated from Yale, top of his class, president of the Honor Society, he had job, job offers out the wazoo. And he turned them all down. Because he had committed his heart and his life to the mission. And so at graduation, he opened his Bible, and he wrote two words in the front leaf of the Bible. Below, no reserves, he wrote, no retreats, no turning back. He had the, he had the carbon dot in the air. He was a marked man. There's no turning back. He went on to Princeton. In a short time, he had a theology degree from Princeton, and he had a a clear discerning in his heart that he was to go to the Kansu people in eastern China, a, a, a Muslim people group. And so he, he joined the mainland, the inland China movement back around, you know, about uh, 2000, I mean, 19 and 11. He joined the inland China movement. And on his way to China, he decided that he would take some months to stop in Egypt and study the Koran, since he was going to a Muslim nation or Muslim people. He would study the, the Koran and study Farsi, the Persian language, you know, so that, because it would give him a, a leg up on his mission. And while he was in Egypt, he, he contacted spinal meningitis, and within months, he died in Egypt. The day before he died on his deathbed, he got out the Bible, he opened it, and on the front leaf of the Bible, beneath the, word, beneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he wrote two more words the day before he died, no regrets. No regrets. Wouldn't you love to be able to get to the end of your life, no matter how long God gives you, and be able to write underneath your life as your personal epitaph, no regrets. That's Paul, and that's Tychicus. You know, in Paul, in, 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 in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when he is 
knows he's facing death. He's just maybe weeks or a month away from death. Paul writes, I have finished the race. I have run, I have, you know, I have run well. I have kept the faith all the way through. I have finished the course. You know, Paul was able to write, no regrets. And that's, he says, that's, that's the kind of community that he was a part of. And so what you need to ask yourself, there's a couple of questions you need to ask yourself. Seriously. Do you have a circle of spiritually minded, committed friends around you? Do you have a circle like that? Do you have a circle of, of spiritually minded, committed friends around you? And the second question would be, and what kind of friend are you to others that are in your sphere of influence? What kind of impact are you having on that sphere? Are you salt and light in the sphere where God has placed you? Okay. So I want us just to, we're going to walk through, you know, some of these names just briefly. And I want to just ask you some questions as we go, okay? Is there anyone here that's in need of a message of encouragement today? Are you in need of a message of encouragement? If so, Tychicus was your guy. That was Paul's guy, okay? He says of Tychicus, I have sent him, that is Tychicus, to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and he may encourage your hearts, that he may reinforce you positively. He may encourage, he may challenge you, he may give you some attaboys when, you know, he finds you doing something that's right. Is there anyone here that is in need of a messenger of encouragement today? Well, Tychicus was Paul's guy. Now, here's what I would ask you. Next to Tychicus' name, whose name would you write? Who's your encourager? Who's who's your encourager? Is there anybody in your life right now that God has placed in your life that is a spiritual encourager to you? What about this? Anybody here needing to reconcile or repair a relationship? Seriously, anybody here got, you know, involved in some broken kind of relationships and, and there's a need for reconciliation and for repair, then, then Onesimus is your guy. You see, Onesimus had come to Christ through the preaching of Paul and he was a runaway slave. His owner, Philemon, was a part of the church there at Colossae and, and after Philemon comes to faith and experiences forgiveness from God, and he reveals to Paul that he is a runaway slave. Then Paul says, you got some unfinished business in your life. Now that you're reconciled to God, you've got to go reconcile to Philemon. You see, and, and it apparently Onesimus not only had run away as a slave, but he had stolen. He had taken money or goods in order to pay for his rebellion, his runaway. And so he had an amends step to do. Anybody here have an amends step to do? Onesimus is your guy. 
And so, so you might write Onesimus on, on one side, and on the other side of the paper, you write the name of someone that you need to reconcile with. And let Onesimus be an encouragement to you that because you have received grace and forgiveness from God, and now it's time then for you to turn your attention on reconciling, making amends, and restoring a relationship in your life. What about this? Anybody here need a safe place? You need a safe place? A place to heal up, a place where you can, you can stay in or kind of get back into the fight? A place where you can get stronger in, in your faith. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers in the kingdom and they have been a, a comfort for me, a paragoria for me. These three, Paul says, are all that's left of his Jewish brethren. Paul had many, remember, Jewish friends and associates over the years. But he says now, while he's in prison in Rome, these are the only three of the Jews that remain loyal to me. They are loyal brothers. They have been with me through thick and thin. They have not disassociated themselves with me or abandoned me in any way. He calls them fellow workers. Together, soon ergoi, together workers. And then he says, they are a, 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 they are a source to me of comfort. And this is a specific word in the Greek. The paragoria is a word for solace and for safety. These guys are my safe place. Paul needed a safe place. Do you sometimes need a safe place? Trust me, you want to live for Christ, you will. Remember what happens to Jesus the night that he's betrayed and he goes to the garden you know, and, and, and he takes three guys with him into the inner part of the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter and James and John. And what does he say to them? He said, guys, my soul is in agony. My heart is breaking. Would you tarry with me? Would you stay with me? Would you keep watch with me? If Jesus needed a safe place... From time to time, you think you won't? And Paul says, Aristarchus and, and John Mark and, and Jesus Justice, those guys are a safe place for me. Those are some loyal friendships. See, now, spiritually, do you have some spiritual friends that are that loyal, that have been with you from thick and, through thick and thin? What about this? Anybody here... Um, feeling the weight of past failures in your life? Anybody in here need a do-over? Ever need, ever need a do-over? John Mark's your guy. Verse 11. Cousin of Barnabas, you know that story? First missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are 
determined and anointed by the church as a team, and they decide to take on this young teenage guy with them, this guy named John Mark, to kind of be their secretary, to be their, their roadie, if you will. They only get a few towns down the road before John Mark, for some reason, never explained in Scripture, which I'm kind of happy about, because there's a lot of reasons why people quit. People quit. I've heard tons of excuses, right? And everybody's excuse works for them. But John Mark quit. He was a quitter. He went back home, back to Antioch. Months and months passed as, 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 as Paul and Barnabas finished up that first missionary journey and they get back to Antioch and they're getting ready to go on the second journey, the second expedition. And, and, and old Barnabas says, hey, let's bring along John Mark. And what does Paul say? No way. I ain't taking that loser, quitter. I mean, their disagreement over John Mark was so sharp that Paul and Barnabas split company. Barnabas went in one direction, Paul went the other. And now, some years have passed, and who's hanging out with Paul? John Mark. What happened? Somewhere along the way, Paul figured out, that boy needs a do-over. Anybody else here need a do-over? Living with past failure? Anybody else need a community that will accept you where you are and say, okay, let's, let's try this again? Let's go at that again? Let's enthrone Christ here. Let's depend on his strength and power. And let's, we'll walk with you, but let's do this again. Let's make another run at that. Anybody here need a prayer warrior? You, you, you need somebody to do some serious praying in your corner. I mean, there's some stuff going on in your life, circumstances, relationships. You just, boy, you need somebody who'll be a prayer warrior for you. Man, if, if, if Epaphras was your guy. L- look at what he says, verse 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you. Now, what does that mean? Back in chapter 1, verse 7, he identifies Epaphras as the guy who founded the church at Colossae. Epaphras came from Ephesus as a missionary sent out by Paul and others who were working for two years in Ephesus, and they began to spread the gospel to these smaller towns. And, and so it was Epaphras who brought the gospel there, who shared first the testimony of Christ. And so he's one of them. And he probably grew up in that region. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling, wrestling on your behalf in his prayers. And the word there is another, it's the word, Paul has used it before in the Colossian letter. Agoniz, agonismo, agonismomeno. Agonismomeno. We get the word agony from it. He has agonized over you guys in prayer. That, and, and listen, there is substance to his prayer. He even, Paul even tells you how, here's, let me tell you how Epaphras prays for you guys in Colossae. Listen, that you may stand mature, that you might grow up in your faith, that you might have full assurance in faith, and that you might live and walk in the will of God. Pretty good prayer, don't you think? For I hear, I bear him witness that he has worked hard. He has really worked hard for you. 
We don't generally think of prayer as like heavy labor, do we? Apparently the way old Paphras did it, it was hard labor. But he was willing to do it. Why? Okay. Not only for Colossae, but for Laodicea and Heropolis. There were three small towns in the Lycus Valley. And, and, and you see, Epaphras had a personal stake in what was going on there. He had, was the first to take the gospel there. So he, you think he didn't, because of his personal stake, he didn't care about what was going on? You know, folks, when you have a personal stake in something, it really will help you pray. Think about it. This is pretty simple. Let me just give you an answer. Okay. So you, you have a friend, and let's just say that friend has lost their job, and they're about to get kicked out of their apartment. If they don't get $750, they're going to be kicked out of their apartment. This is your friend. No fault of their own, but suddenly this friend of yours, they find themselves, and you know this has been your, they find themselves in a very difficult place. You can go into their apartment and you can say, hey, I'll pray for you, and you can leave. Or you could go in and say, hey, friend, I'm going to get you that $750 that you need so you won't have to lose your apartment. Now, what would that do to your prayer life? You might start praying, oh, God, I don't know where that 750 is coming from. Because <laughs> I don't have it, but I just told, you know, I just told my friend, you know, Betty, that I was going to help her with her rent this month. When you have a personal stake, it changes the whole prayer thing. And, and what he's saying is, you know what, Epaphras, he's got a personal stake in what's going on there, guys. And so he ne- he's on this guy's on his knees doing hard work continually. And it's, it's interesting because Epaphras somehow has the idea that the hardest and most diligent and most needed work for them was what? Real prayer. We don't think that way much anymore, do we? So next to Epaphras' name, who, who, who are you praying for? I mean, who are you diligently doing the hard work of prayer for right now? Okay, and then anybody here need someone who will stick their neck out and meet a practical need in your life? That kind of goes with what we just talked about. But anybody here willing to stick their neck out and, 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 and give some practical help along the way? He mentions here Dr. Luke. Now, William Barclay in his commentary says this about Luke. He gave up, Luke gave up what would have been a very lucrative career as a, as in medicine in order to tend to Paul's thorn in the flesh. Now, William Barclay believes that Paul's thorn in the flesh was a strain of malaria that was, that was prominent in, you know, in that day and time that would reoccur and cause super high fevers and delirium and delirium and that sort of thing. And, and so, you know, so, so William Barclay says, here's this, here's this doctor who could have had a lucrative career and he gives up his career so that he can take care of Paul. And then all of Paul's associates and team members as well. And then along the way, he preaches the gospel and, and then later records the history of the early church, writes the gospel of Luke and I mean, so here, here's a guy, he's a doctor over here, he's a professional over here, but he's got a ministry too. Interesting. I mean, Luke's a good model for us on how do I incorporate this thing of my, 
my gift, my calling, my career, you know, with my, my personal mission in life. I, I won't say anything about Demas. Um, it turns out that he wasn't of much help uh, because in in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's, the only description you get of Demas, he, he just says hello here. He's just waving, um, you know, in the text. And Paul doesn't say anything about him, and it could have been because Paul was just watching Demas. Paul might have just been watching Demas to see which way he was going to go. Sometimes you do that. Sometimes you have to give people time, you know, just to figure out what, they're, what they really want. And you study them long enough, you'll figure out what they really want. And it turns out that what Demas really wanted was the world. More than he wanted Christ, he wanted the world. And so Demas left, and so we can put a, a sad face with Demas, okay? Uh, here's another question for you. Anybody here need a small group to grow with and hang out with? The nymphs, your gal, okay? Um, verse 15. And give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. You see, and back in that day and time, there weren't any church buildings, were there? So what did you do? People just opened their homes up to each other, and they, and so it was, you know, the church was just a conglomeration of small groups. So I wonder why Will Ben would emphasize small groups. Because that's where real life transformation takes place, and it's the New Testament model. You're saying if you're going to have quality relationships that move below the surface, you will have to invest in relationships to, to know and to be known. So there are some people in this room that need a small group right now. Nympha's your model for that. Look around. Where is that small group for you? And, and then here's the last one, and then we'll close. Anybody here need a good swift kick in the derriere? I love this. I mean, he's getting to the close of this letter and listen to what he says. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I mean, it's, it's a rebuke. It's a little in your face. Don't forget, somebody, somebody give Archippus a big swift kick in the butt. There is a poem that I, I dearly love. It's a takeoff on the Footprints in the Sand poem. I've read this before years ago. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's anonymously written, but I'll read it to you. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. The footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prince appeared, and I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, Jesus said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith. But you refused. You refused and made me wait. You disobeyed. You would not grow the walk of faith. You would not know. So I got tired. I got fed up. And there I dropped you on your butt. 
Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. (laughs) I have a serious question for you, though. Who do you give permission to to kick your butt spiritually? Who are you accountable to? I don't see that much. And what I love about the healthy, authentic, and non-superficial relationships that I see in Paul's circle of friends is there's that kind of healthy, in-your-face kind of stuff going on. Archippus, get focused. Pick up your ministry and fulfill your calling. Now, guys, here's a truth for you. You may not like this, but I'm not looking at a single person in this room that doesn't have a gift and a calling and a ministry. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Fulfill your ministry. And if you want to do that, you're going to have to own it, and you're going to have to give some people permission in your life to kick your derriere if you're not paying attention to what you need to be doing. In your relationships, in your family, in your church, in your workplace, in your ministry, wherever God's called you, that's the truth. And so then Paul writes, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Remember my chains. No regrets. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. Grace be with you. Let's pray.